Friday, April 23rd, and you're listening to another episode of the Tech Breakfast Podcast, the show that brings you the delicious tech news and all the hot takes you can handle with Tyler Gates, Russ Cantwell, and Aaron Bewley. But Aaron isn't here today. Aaron's busy. So you got Russ and Tyler. What's up, Tyler? What's up, Russ? How you doing, man? Oh, you know, ready to close out the week. Um, it's yes. been a, It's been a very busy week. It has in, in general, so I'm I'm ready to close out the week. I don't know about yourself. Right? I'm very ready. In fact, my week is kind of closed out already because uh, VMware gave us today off. I don't know. They call it an Epic Two Day Off, which we've talked about a little bit before. Yeah, with the, sort of our our ethos. And um, uh, so yeah, I've got the day off, but I'm not taking it off the podcast because it's too fun. There you go. That's pretty sweet. Yeah, well, right. I uh, I do not have the day off, and ironically, I am working on VMware related most of today. It's probably so, how we can take the day <laughs> off. We've got partners doing all the heavy lifting. <laughs> well, you got stuff <laughs> preparing your own webinars for you. Now, now I know why that guy's not responding to my emails. There it uh, is. That's funny. There it is. Yeah. Well, let's let's check and see if there's anything cool uh, this day in tech history. Uh, let's see. Okay. So. Obviously, nothing has happened today in history yet because we wake up earlier than tech history does. Uh, You know what? I don't know how significant this is or not. I'm going to see if you've even heard of this. I will candidly say that I have not. (laughs) Version 1.0 of Mosaic was released on April 22nd, 1993. 93 Mosaic was a browser. Nailed it. See, I didn't know what it was. Yeah, no, I remember Mosaic, uh, albeit briefly. Mosaic, I used before Opera, I think, which was before Mozilla, at least in my usage history. But Firefox actually came after Mosaic and Opera for me. Man, I didn't use Opera until probably college. Same with Mozilla. I mean, I think, <clears throat> I mean, first I was using AOL. Can't <laughs> yeah, like, no, that's, I, that's what I was. Living <laughs> I I was it was if gosh if I can remember the history here it would have been like Prodigy, AOL, Netscape, and then it had to have been around then where it was uh, Mosaic and then Opera Mozilla. I'm not positive which one of those I used first. I probably bounced between them because of some you know new snappiness or whatever, um, and and then. Of course, Microsoft uh, got the mix in there, but I it, I don't remember it because I feel like every time you booted up a Windows machine, you were using uh, Internet Explorer, so it didn't it wasn't a change or a choice. <laughs> Pretty sure they got sued for that. <laughs> I, I think they did. I actually remember explaining to people who were also leveraging AOL at the time that they could they could use. Internet Explorer. Something while else. logged into yeah. AOL. They just, they didn't, right. you just, it wasn't, I guess it wasn't obvious. And, you know, people didn't, right. they thought they were connected to this application. They didn't right. recognize the application at the time is just one of many things that oh. could present content from this network. And I don't, I don't believe you. I think they first. literally thought that browser was the internet, all of it. Oh, they did. I remember sure. using Guaranteed. AOL when you jumped in. It was like news on the front page and a browser. Like the concept of a browser didn't even occur to me. I was like, this is the internet. I am well, in the internet. Yeah. I mean, if you think <laughs> about it, because you, you really kind of made or opened what would effectively be tabs inside Man. of AOL because you, you opened yep. up another page with inside of basically the fat application. Like that's right. it was a fat client, you know? I mean, that's, that's true. So that's true. What it was. 
So, but you know, mail. whatever. We loved it. It was a great time. Always had those free discs. And I think we have oh Mosaic to thank for some of this because as I'm reading this, I mean, candidly, I I genuinely had never heard of Mosaic. So showing some ignorance here, but the uh, it is the first software to provide a GUI for the World Wide Web. There you go. So I did not know that, but I remember it. I, I didn't, I mean, I couldn't even tell you. I was, I was so... It's probably scatterbrained at that point in my life. Like I remember using it and there's a good chance I used it because my brother found it. Who's just a little bit older than me um, sure. and, and said, Hey, do this instead. Um, but I couldn't, I couldn't even begin to tell you why or how I found it for that. <laughs> <laughs> well, a fun fact about it is the lead mosaic developer um, who is uh, Mark Anderson or Andreessen uh, was one of the future founders of something that I very much so am familiar with called Netscape. So mm-hmm. kind of the beginnings of uh, something that was a little bit bigger later Netscape, on the day. Netscape, man. Yeah. I remember that browser. I remember that. I just remember the logo and how often and long you'd have to watch it spin because everything was so, so very slow. Oh, so everything was <laughs> unbelievably slow. I remember praying whenever I would connect with my modem. This, you know, this was, um, I guess it was 56K capable days. I mean, not that nothing anyone ever really got a full 56K. But I remember that I would pretty consistently connect around. <clears throat> well, not consistently, but it was the highest I could connect was like 26.6. And oh. I was always sort of begging for that 26.6. I was like, I want the full thing. <laughs> oh, that's right. It would, it would. I forgot all about that because I remember having all of the different generations of modems. Because I think that I want to say the earliest one that we had was a 9600 baud. I, I distinctly remember 14.4 and 26.6 and then the 56.6. Like, I remember, I remember like the day we got those because obviously it's like, oh my gosh, double the speed. It's so, so very slow. But I had my I had family one time that I connected at 28.8, like one time, wow. and I oh, did yeah. not want to get off of the line. I was yeah, like, just right. leave no, it going good. forever. And I feel like we talked about this at least once before, but my family only had one phone line. Um, so our home line was the line that, that our modem used because, you know, for anybody that's listening and isn't familiar with this, those old modems literally just screamed at your telephone line at something oh, on the other incredible. end they could interpret the screams um and yeah yeah anybody that that grew up with that like they hear those and it's just i don't know emotions just flow back through your body you can't your brain just takes over subconscious but um that that had a, a very distinct and awful downside which was it was interruptible in the oh, sense that if someone picked up so the phone <laughs> it would destroy your connection um and and while you were using the internet, it completely eliminated the ability to use the phone. So people would call, they'd get a busy signal. But because my home had one phone line, as opposed to you know lots of friends I had, they had an internet phone line and then they had their home phone line. Uh, my parents would regularly pick up the phone mid download of song, mid you know doing something on a form, whatever it was. And of course, the, the everything would just come to a screeching halt It'd be like, no, mom, no. <laughs> and of course, they'd be like, it's the home phone. Go do something else. <laughs> <laughs> we uh, we did not have a dedicated, per se, phone line for the internet. But my sister and I had a separate line that we shared. Fancy. And so we were able to uh, 
used that line and basically just gave all of our friends the primary home phone number. Yeah, that's what uh, so, I would have done you know, too. It worked, worked out that way fairly well. Although there were times when my sister would mess it up and I was like in the middle of a of a StarCraft game um, because RTS games work great on uh, just random or dial up just in general. Like you could deal with the, the latency that you were working with on like say um, Counter-Strike, which was awful <laughs> to, to be able to play at that time. So I would be playing like StarCraft oh, or whatever man. else. And then all of sure. a sudden it would just pause and I would just go find my sister. And, no. Yeah, exactly. What have you done? Yeah, what have oh, you done? But so Counter-Strike specifically was one of those, you're right. Like the, the lag in that game was awful. And the first two player multiplayer first person shooter I ever played was actually um, Grand Theft Auto 2 followed uh, yeah. closely by, if not preceded by, I can't actually remember exactly which one came first, Doom 2. So both of those had online multiplayer. Surely Doom. Um, yeah. I think Doom may have been first, but but I, I don't remember which one I played because I had a terrible, terrible internet experience. So playing multiplayer online wasn't necessarily like top of mind. Sure. But the lag was extraordinary. And it still is. If you have lots of lag in those games, it's just an awful, awful experience. But I remember when my brother went to college and all of a sudden he had the LAN at his disposal and real internet connectivity as well, they'd have local on-campus games down at Texas State or, or wasn't Texas State then, but... Um, uh, Southwest Texas State University. Southwest Texas State University, there it is. Uh, it, I went to go visit him a couple of times and like the glory that was Counter-Strike lag-free was just eye-opening. Oh, it was amazing. Trust me. <laughs> I understand this feeling. <laughs> <laughs> it changed my life. Uh, yeah, it was next level. But uh, we should move on to, to whatever yes, we have yes, in indeed. the in the tech news. Uh, speaking of which, what do we oh, have man. in the tech we, news? We have, I think there are a couple of fun ones. Uh, I, I stumbled across an article. I actually already tweeted it out yesterday. But um, this is a really fun read, so I recommend anybody that hasn't already read about it, go just give it. It's not long, but it, it's actually, I don't know, it was cleverly written. Anyways, um, Signal, a Signal developer uh, basically got his hands on a Celebrite. Oh, was the CEO? I wasn't sure. Like, so, so, and this is, I, I thought it was the CEO when I read it because Signal actually has their own. That's what I tweeted out. Signal actually wrote about this. Um, and then uh, the news outlets picked it up. So I saw it on Gizmodo. I saw it on Ars Technica. And Ars Technica just says Signal Developer. So that's what I was top of mind. Anyways, read the one from Signal because it's great. And it's very like tongue-in-cheek and in a, definitely a pushback. But basically, uh, Celebrate is a company that makes a device that is is designed to open up and pull information from Android and iOS devices, as well as I think some other mobile devices, but predominantly those two huge OSs, right? And it's it comes in a kit, which has got a you know, bevy of dongles, and it is designed to open it wide up. So it, it's, a, it's a forensics device that law enforcement often uses to basically circumvent personal security on those devices. Well, Signal got a hold of it because I guess Celebrate recently added the ability for Signal messages to be exposed through the, the Celebrate device. Um, and the, the CEO, as Russ pointed out, got a hold of the device, effectively reverse engineered it, and then just started wreaking havoc on the ecosystem that is Celebrate. And that's the part that's so funny to me. Because if you look at it, he basically says at the end of the article, he sums it up with, hey, if you see random 
aesthetically important files. That's it. Like they serve no other purpose other than we think they're pretty in the Signal ecosystem. Um, don't worry about it. And after explaining what he had done to the device, he also explained that it is possible to do anything and everything you want with a Celebrite device through hundreds of exploits because it is basically very poorly secured as a device. And what he did in, in this, this you know, adventure was he started just updating signal apps to randomly distribute files that can and will mess up Celebrite devices when they see it, which means that the pedigree of Celebrite's history, because one of the things that he explicitly said you can do once you take advantage of the device, once you, once you get into its system, is modify files at will. So he basically said Signal now includes files, maybe, maybe not, that could exploit a Celebrite device as soon as it is plugged in and forever change the data that Celebrite sees in historical draws as well as any future draws. Yeah, making it, it, it completely worthless from a legal perspective. It, it's 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 ridiculous. <laughs> and so it's, it's so funny because everything in the article is written tongue in cheek. So I read the one on it, absolutely, and then I went and I read um, the article from Signal itself. From Signal. And it's awesome. it was so funny. In fact, that that part you're talking to is is worth going through in full. And I'll do that in a second. Yeah. It was just a it was so funny because they were talking about how you could basically just, you know, potentially give a dummy file <clears throat> with whatever capability it might be, the ability to just manipulate everything within everything celebrate. And so as it walked through all of these different issues and things that they had done, and it's yeah. worth noting that someone at Celebrite had mentioned that they could crack Signal's encryption like yes. a few weeks earlier. So clearly, yeah. this struck a chord. Oh, it uh, did. <laughs> and it, 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 it led me to think about that part in, uh, God, there's a Clint Eastwood movie where, um, Gran Torino, where he, he, he rolls up on some kids who are kind of giving this girl a hard time in, in a bad oh, neighborhood. Yeah. And he says... He, he he walks up to him and he's like, hey, you know that time when you came across the guy that you just shouldn't have effed with? Well, that's me. Like, that's, that's me. <laughs> that's his line. And it, it's so great the way he does it. And I thought of that when I thought that's of this, great. especially when you read that final part. So I'll go through it. It's yes. really short. It says... In completely unrelated news, upcoming <laughs> versions of Signal will be periodically fetching files to place in app storage. These files are never used for anything inside of Signal and never interact with Signal software or data, but they look nice. And aesthetics are important <laughs> in software. We have a few different versions of files that we think are aesthetically pleasing and will iterate through, through the, those slowly over time. There is no yes. other significance to these files like that. I love it. I love oh, it. And, so and like good. I said, you got to go read it. It's really funny. And, and there's another thing of note here too, which is that, that uh, Signal came back to Celebrite and said, hey, we identified about 8 billion security vulnerabilities. And they outlined a few of them, which I thought was funny because it's like, here, here's 400 for free, but don't worry, we're still going to screw you up. Um, but then they said in the article, it's like, we reached out and we said, hey, we'll share all of your security vulnerabilities so that you can patch them and make sure that this doesn't happen again with the agreement that you make it clear all of the exploits you use to get into people's apps and phones. And of course, yep. Celebrite was like, nope, that's our bread and butter. I'm out. Right. <laughs> and that's the that's the rub for a lot of people. They're like, uh -huh. well, there's this whole idea of, uh, you know, ethical hacking. And whenever you find yeah. exploits, you're supposed to privately share hacking. them. It's like, well, Celebrite doesn't do this. Nope. So 
why should why we? should we treat them any differently? And so it's it's yeah. it's amazing because one part of this that I you know I don't know the validity of this and and no one will until someone looks at it, but I guarantee you someone's looking at it is yeah. part of this said that he found DLLs that are directly property and IP yes. of Apple, Apple inside of Celebrite. Yeah, that are that, being that's a big in claim. Way. And, yeah. and again, like, just read it. It's not a long read, but the, like the shots fired aren't, it's not gentle at all. Like that's, that's serious. <laughs> oh, it's, it's absolutely massive. And it reminds me of, it, you know, there's, especially in the computing world. I mean, there's, there's a couple different people that you just don't piss off. Um, one is sort of like, you know, the, the general sort of security hacking community. That seems obvious. But the other one is the Linux community. And, and the Linux community is, is largely tied to the security and, and hacking community. And I just remember a time back when, I mean, it was a long time ago, is when the PS3 had kind of first released. And I don't know if people know this or not, but you could actually run Linux on the PS3, like an actual full-blown Linux. Oh, yeah, I remember this. Yeah, it was a really cool. Feature. I like reading about hardware hacking, and and people used it. I mean, but in the in the amount of percentage of people who use the Linux operating system, which is like three percent of the desktop market, so it's obviously pretty small. And so eventually, they just sort of decided to deprecate the feature, which also really pissed off the Linux community. <laughs> <laughs> and and so they were like, people had reached out to Sony and been like, hey, so is there going to be a workaround for us to still be able to continue to use this um, or to prevent patching? And Sony was like, no, yeah. we, we're taking this out forever. We're done. And Lin the Linux community basically said, <clears throat> yeah, that's, that's not going to work for us. <laughs> so they completely circumvented everything within the PS3 operating system and got it up and running, had yep. more functionality out of it and ended up <laughs> candidly creating quite a problem because then all of a sudden PS3 became very hackable. You oh, absolutely. Pirated so homebrew friendly. I mean, yep. they just destroyed the PS3. So it's like, hey, if you're going to have this thing for a specific community and you know that that community has a propensity for taking things that don't traditionally work and making them work. Do not take away something that you have given them. <laughs> Especially so. not from a group of tech-savvy users. Like, what did you expect? And I feel like this is going to be the theme of the show today. Is like, don't pick fights like that. Just don't. It's no, a bad idea. No, it is. It's a and, terrible idea. And that's a perfect segue to uh, another story that I got my hands on. Actually, my brother shared it uh, with, with Aaron and I this morning. Uh, my brother Todd Gates. And um, so th this is a neat one because this one's a little bit more um, David and Goliath is, as well. But there, there's a tiny startup. Um, now it's called Kitsch uh, that, that they basically came to be. It, it's a husband and wife pair um, that set out to solve the grand problem that is the finicky availability of soft serve machines at McDonald's. And, and this was, this is funny because I, I probably would not have read this if my brother hadn't shared it and said, this is a really good read. And it's, it, this is a long read, a uh, fun one, but a long read. And um, what, what I thought was cool is like, I, I don't a eat soft serve. I've been keto for a long time. B I haven't been to McDonald's in a very long time. 
Um, but I am aware of the fact soft serve ice cream. I do. <laughs> it's delicious. It's Please delicious. Yes. Yes. So, but, but my point is I am aware of like this, it, it's basically like a cultural thing to, to feel angry about broken soft serve machines. Like I, I remember every once in a while, stuff will just pop up where people have built online trackers for whether or not your McDonald's has a working soft serve machine as an example. As well. Um, there, there was a running joke that's actually talked about in the article where people started saying, I'm going to use my, uh, you know, pandemic refund check, right, to pay to have the soft serve at my McDonald's fixed. And, and the, the author of the article actually said, I stopped counting at 200. So hundreds of people are, are willing to spend their own money to fix a soft serve machine and a lot of it, at least jokingly. But Here's the thing, and it's actually it's a cool read because it talks a lot about supply chain. It talks about uh, you know basically a monopolized sort of ecosystem. I say monopolized, but it sounds like there are comp- competitors to this Taylor ice machine or or soft serve machine. And Taylor is the name of the company. It's Taylor something, but they um, they produce the best soft serve machine, and and it's the best because it's self contained. It does a lot of cool stuff. It produces the the best results. But apparently. If any little thing goes wrong with it, it just craps the bed and stops working, which is why they're down so often. And so what this startup did was they created a monitoring device that would intercept all of these commands because there's this big secret menu in in this Taylor ecosystem that has all of this data that they don't share with with their end users. And they're $18,000 machines that the franchisees have to buy. And then they have very expensive... Uh, service contracts that Taylor actually gets a cut of basically every service event. And it the whole thing is this creepy proprietary loop where they don't really let anybody know what's going on. And so this this company that became known as Kitsch, that they kind of rebranded, they started as something else using Taylor machines, then they realized how problematic the machines were. Kitsch is just this little device, like I said, it goes, it, it kind of intercepts all of the communication and, and they made a web interface to monitor your machines. And, uh, you know, to, to summarize it a little bit, um, McDonald's never really got behind it, but at the same time said, like, this will save you money. So we don't support it. We don't get behind it as a supplier or anything like that. But it's probably something you should buy for your franchise. Mean, um, so they're saying that to their franchisees, right? Like, like at their conference, support this, but you you may want to. Yeah, we don't recommend it. We don't support it, but you probably want to do this because it's a good financial decision, right? Well, um, Taylor apparently, and this is up in the air because it hasn't been proven out legally yet. But it looks like they finally got their hands on one of the kitsch devices. Uh, you know, reverse engineered it released their own version of a wireless tracking, of course, charging lots for it against the franchises, worked with McDonald's. McDonald's basically came back, told the franchises they can't use the uh, the Kitsch device anymore. And of course, that has created this battle. And now the, the startup is actually going so far as to, to, to go for the deepest pocket trick. They're going to sue McDonald's just saying that this is a, a conspiracy to, to oh, prevent snap. them from doing their stuff. So it, it's an interesting one. I'm, I'm really curious to see how it actually works out. But it it falls into like the right to repair uh you know ecosystem where you know there's always legal battles around whether or not the end user should even have a right to get into and see all of the inner workings and know what's going on and and make choices about that or if those su- supplier uh, ecosystems are proprietary in in their entirety and they can just say your warranty is void if you monitor it with something that isn't ours or your warranty is void if you don't use our service tax every two days, whatever it is. And and they really have no recourse to push back against something that is, well, 
not working well consistently if they break down as much as they do. But sure. it was a really interesting article. It was pretty funny. There are a lot I, of good uh, highlights, but I have a friend who uh, everyone has this friend who's like the smartest person in the group for, for, for Aaron, it was probably you. For, for me, it was <laughs> this, this guy named Travis. He was, uh, he's, he's a year older than me. Uh, went to my high school. We we're uh, college roommates. His name is Travis. Travis should by all accounts be trying to cure cancer um, (laughs) colonize the moon or whatever it is like he should be working with Elon. He's just, he's one of those unreasonably intelligent people that you sort of, they sort of have to give it up somewhere else. So he's a little odd. Um, But uh, he decided to take his genius and apply it in a way that no one ever expected. He decided to run some McDonald's. Uh, so That's he, awesome. And when I say that, his his goal, and I believe he's actually already achieved this, and I think he makes more money than uh, you and I combined. They, no doubt, no doubt. Uh, he he's he's working towards ownership of of multiple McDonald's stores. Um, and uh, and so to do that, you know, you have to like basically work every job inside of it, and and learn how to. You have to get approved by basically the McDonald's mafia to to be able to become an <laughs> owner. There's there's this whole process that I've heard about, which is wow. crazy to hear. Yeah, I didn't so realize he, it was that intimate. That's crazy. it is, and he's so he's been doing this now for I guess fifteen ish years or so, somewhere in that that range. He ironically did drop out of uh, his master's program in order to pursue this, and. Um, the uh, so I'm gonna have to ask him about this because we talk a lot about operational efficiencies of business in general and the things that he deals with and and sort of the the requirements to like the differences between them and Chick Fil A even I mean it's just a uh, it's it's sort of fascinating to see it from the perspective of someone who is owning and operating that type of business and I, I'd be I very bet. curious to see what his thoughts are so I'll see if I can collect some and maybe report yeah. back on the, bring him on the show ice cream issue I'll try and bring yeah, him on the funny. show but he doesn't really like talking to people is uh, I'm not a, a major We're robots problem yeah this is just zoom yeah that's true that's true that would no that would be really interesting um and it, in McDonald's in particular is actually really well documented especially when you when you get to like business efficiency as well as you know some of the creative things they did early with um food right i mean one of the one of the things sure. I, as i understand it one of the things that mcdonald's did really early and and i'm just i'm pulling back in my history here because uh for a brief chunk of time i w- at lockheed i worked in um, a quality organization and uh in in particular uh one of the executives in the or- uh, in the org had actually written a chapter chapter in uh duran's one of one of his quality books like an oh. engineering text around quality um, and so I think we all got copies of it at, at a certain time, but reading through it, um, and, and I remember this elsewhere in my master's studies, McDonald's is often a case study for uh, supply chain logistics, um, for quality and repeatable processes, for eliminating waste and all of that sort of stuff. Everything from how they got their potatoes, discovering that they could make them more delicious by freezing them with salt, two problems simultaneously. You know, one is potatoes never go bad because they're frozen and two, they taste better because you fried them when they were frozen. Like it was things like that, but then everything inside the store regularly would get like kind of rejiggered to figure out what is the most efficient way to do the thing. And then how do you take what you have and with as little real estate and as few steps as possible, can you add something else 
that incrementally increases revenue without really increasing costs very much. So McDonald's is notorious for having done just absolutely phenomenal things in almost all of those spaces. Um, So it'd be kind of fun to hear somebody's inside perspective. Well, I would I would be remiss if I didn't mention this because um, pretty much my, my wife and I don't really eat fast food very often. In fact, we really didn't at all for a very long time. Um, but we do like Chick Fil A, and uh, so every now and then, whenever we go to Chick Fil A, I am reminded about the world class operational excellence with which that company operates at, and it is. In my opinion, potentially second to none, Toyota could probably learn from them. I mean, it's just <laughs> unbelievable the way that they're able to orchestrate consistent quality of their product as well as speed of delivery. I mean, every Dude, single... They handle surge better than any... Uh, any yes, yeah, by far. Fast it's food company, period. Not even close. And for our international listeners who maybe don't have Chick-fil-A or haven't seen it, I don't, I don't know how far their reach is. You would go to a Chick-fil-A in America, and I can guarantee you right now at this time, they are they are completely backed up around the corner at whatever location is closest <laughs> to wherever you are. I guarantee it. But you will look at that and say to yourself, this is going to be an incredibly long line. It's a very it's going to take us an hour to get food. It will probably no. take you 10 minutes. Like yeah, it's, it's, it's unbelievable so the way that they they run this. And I, I've just every time I see it, I, I send a jab to Travis and he'll straight up say he's like, yeah, they're the gold standard. Like we yeah. we would love to be them. But then he goes into all these reasons as to why they can't like even the cost of product difference and the margins that they operate on wow. the specific employees they can hire. I mean, it's amazing. That, that's insane. That, yeah. So like he goes into incredible detail about that's actually that's really interesting. Excellence there. And and it, it doesn't surprise me either because you know, I was saying McDonald's is is literally textbook examples of a lot of this stuff. It's you brought up Toyota, the Toyota production system definitely fits that bill when it comes to you know manufacturing really of any widget, right? Right. Toyota is is a gold standard historically for all of that. Um, and that 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 history is actually really interesting too, because uh the Toyota production system was actually built on the back of American engineers. Think um, industrial engineers. They went and they tried to sell this idea to uh, American automobile manufacturers. Think like Ford, GM, stuff like that. And they were all like, get out of here. You don't know what you're talking about. And they said, you know what? Screw it. And they ended up in Asia where uh, basically being a white beard was automatically puts you on a pedestal at the time for sure. I imagine culturally, there's still a little bit of that. But they came in and they said, we know stuff. And the Japanese, in, in the case of Toyota, they said, oh, yeah, you probably do know stuff. Let's listen. And then they just listened and did it. And it absolutely Sounds upended dumb. how you produce vehicles in, in specifically to, to Toyota uh, you know, car manufacturing. But then it bled into all of the rest of the industry, whether it's heavy industry and stuff like that. And, and it became the global golden standard for how you basically build stuff. Um, so it's actually a pretty cool background. But my point there is that there seems to always be opportunity for disruption with efficiency because uh, I think with like you bringing that up, the other cool thing about Chick-fil-A in my opinion is that they they seem to have paired the two things that make companies absolutely kill it in, in that space in particular. But I also think more generically, which is speed of service, quality of service in that regard, but then, the quality of service from like a support perspective is 
to me, reminiscent of what makes Amazon so incredible as a retailer as well, which is the customer can do no wrong. And so they've got, even when they're completely inundated with customers and like you said, wrapped around the block, they've got people walking around that are just offering to pick up your your trash or bring you a condiment or refill your, your cup of tea and stuff like that. And they, by all means, you look at the room and you think there's no way they have a head to help with this, but they always do. Yep. And so that those little things aren't so little. They're what create this just absolutely awesome experience. So it's it's neat to see that stuff happen. It really is. And, and to tie it back to the Toyota thing, what I think I've mentioned this on the show before, but it always just cracks me up is that one, one of the ideas that these brilliant engineers had was to uh, modernize the way that sort of the door frame fittings worked in cars. And the way that they were originally done was... Uh, they were fairly loose about the process and they would basically just use hammers to just, you know, punch them in. It was part of the process and make them, make them fit. And then these engineers who eventually created sort of the Toyota process were just like, yeah, what if we just made the doors to fit from the, how about we do that? (laughs) (laughs) And, and I think that the, you know, Ford and GM were like, what? No. That Why? doesn't make any sense. Uh, it probably makes sense now. But yeah, uh, that's let's great. See, what else do we have here? Did you see the, uh, there's some crypto, not not good crypto stuff? Oh, oh, I did see this. This is uh, exchange. What? I don't know which exchange yeah. it was. Uh, Tor, I forget it. It's one that I never it's used. A, okay, it's, uh, it's a Turkish Thodex. crypto uh, crypto exchange called, yeah, Thodex, T H O D E X. So near 400,000 users fear a potential fraud of up to $2 billion which, uh, which as, I as mean, the exchange goes dark. Seems like a pretty legit fear because according, this is a quote directly from the article, which uh, I think would set me on edge were I using this exchange. According to numerous local news outlets, Thodex's CEO, Farouk Fatih Uzer, I'm sure I butchered that, sorry, no, fled I to Thailand so. From Istanbul Airport on Tuesday afternoon with $2 billion worth of digital assets. (laughs) (laughs) Oh, I don't mean to laugh at the Uh, people who are being, you know, uh by this, but that's a pretty clear indicator that something bad is going on. When when the CEO flees, literally flees the country with with his purse intact or some part of it, it's not a good look. How did they know he had it? Was he carrying them with him? I know. the exact same thought (laughs) i i I think that's a that's that's a clever way to say the guy still owns two billion dollars worth of crypto and has fled the country because i doubt he put it in his man purse they they made it sound like crypto coins were falling out of his pockets as he was going imagine the guy running through the airport in like a what do you like the flowery uh flamingo shorts right that's that's what i'm envisioning with money just falling out of a bag or sorry crypto coins yeah so i i brought this up like a hundred times to aaron and and i know you've been on those threads but you don't own your crypto if you don't own your keys yep and and obviously we want crypto exchanges to be ultra secure but I, i think anyone who's listening to this shows knows that eventually the securest of secure is not secure. And and when it comes to digital assets, there there are there are only a few ways that you can basically guarantee your crypto is not potentially just going to up and disappear. And and I would say the closest to always secure and you know it is literally a paper wallet 
where you own the keys and those keys are well hidden slash not even written down. Memorize that crap if you can. Um, the next would be a hardware wallet where at least the only opportunity to compromise it is every time you plug it into your computer, which is real and I'm sure will happen, has happened actually. I know early days with Ledger, um, they had issues with some security exploits, right? Um, but if you're keeping your crypto in an exchange, yes, it is the easiest place to onboard, offboard, trade, move around, spend potentially, arguably. Um, sure. You don't have the private keys. They have your wallet. They have your access to that blockchain. It's, it's what makes it easy to do all of the things I just said, but they're not really in your possession. Um, and unlike a bank, they are not FDIC insured if you're in the United States. They don't have federal insurance for your back. Maybe there's third-party insurance that you can get. But if the exchange gets compromised, it, they're digital assets. People can literally script moving it in mass. And what makes exchanges potentially even more dangerous, and I'm sure each exchange does this a little bit differently, is that in, in some cases, and this happened like Mount Mount. Gox, right, was one of the first big hacks that happened and, and showed up in the news. Um, but if you think about uh, Bitcoin as an example, you can store as much Bitcoin as you want in a single address. So you could have a single Bitcoin address and you could have millions of Bitcoin in it. Well, an exchange could arguably create an ecosystem where it has some sort of digital marker for what you own but does not actually have an explicit wallet for you. Or if they do, it's just a receive wallet, but they could pool it to make transactions less expensive, being able to put more crypto into it. It depends on the, the exchange. It depends on the, the currency, but it could be as easy as just having access to the cryptos or the exchange's main sort of repository and a single transaction could take it all away. And then what do you have? You have an illiquid exchange. There's nothing you can do to get it back. And there, there are numerous examples of this already. Mt. Gox is a big one. Um, uh, Bit, oh my gosh, uh, there was an Italian exchange um, where where they they effectively got hacked. It's actually questionable whether it was a hack or it was just fraud from the CEO, where like everybody's assets just evaporated, right? And and so the exchange shut down overnight, and you could no longer trade in or trade out. And then it, basically the recourse was we're illiquid. There's nothing we can do about it. We've been hacked was their claim and legal act action. But it, like it's a mess. And it and this was like it. yeah right. <laughs> <laughs> so so lots of these things have happened, and and we hope. And we've talked about this too. Um, exchanges like Coinbase, you you hope that their brands and their their attention to security keeps them from ever being in the news this way. But keep in mind, well, it, I I would argue it's just a matter of time, right? Sure. And and the more they have, the bigger the target on their back. And and as we know, hard as you may try, security is just not that easy. So. As, as we'll see reported many times did uh, I don't know that we talked about it, but did you see the article about the third employee at Coinbase and how he got his job and, and what the interview process was like for him? No, huh? It, it was it's it's it was pretty funny to me. Just uh, it was some kid graduating out of college um, with a computer science degree or maybe a couple of them. I don't know. And he basically he, he had done. I think he got a master's and, and did his uh, did some dissertation work on on crypto or uh, just uh, any form of 
I, I guess, digital ledger sort of stuff. He, that's where he made his focus anyways. And he wanted to work in this industry really bad. So he sent an email, like a cold email to the two founders, which were the only two employees at the time of Coinbase and basically said, hey, I just graduated with this degree. I will do any job. And they, they ended up setting up an interview for him cool. and, and basically asked him, what do you think we should do? Like, what do you think Coinbase should be or how should we do it? What would your business plan be? And they gave him a week oh. or whatever. And he created, he created a business plan and, and came in and he basically, like yeah, every single thing that he did was rooted in doing. trust and security. Oh, that's awesome. That was Gosh. literally his explicit thing. He was like, if they don't trust us and if we aren't doing it securely, then it won't matter. And, so, and it's true. Absolutely yeah. true. Uh, and, and it takes got, one event hired, like this to, to put them majorly set back Coinbase. And, and what's, what's even more interesting about that at this point is that, at least from a US market perspective, Coinbase is so arguably intrinsically critical to adoption of cryptocurrency now that a major security event for Coinbase could be devastating to cryptocurrencies in general, at least for a while. Now, US doesn't own a lot. We talked about that you know, relative to that. But as far as onboarding currency in the United States, Coinbase is bar none the place you go. Oh, yeah. Um, for the average consumer, I mean, there are obviously tons of other places that you can onboard with fiat and, and stuff like that. But if you if you were to ask somebody on the street, they'd either say, what's crypto or Coinbase, um, in, in my opinion. Sure. And so I uh, don't uh, and, and you know, you've you've seen this in our chat. Aaron mm-hmm. will send something over and he'll basically say, you know, are you guys looking at this? Should I get that? Yada, yada, yada. Mm-hmm. And it's like, if, it's, if it's not on Coinbase, I don't, Coinbase. I don't buy it. Like I don't, True. I don't, me- I don't mess with it. Like I, and, and yeah. I'm fine with that. Like, that's not a, sure. I don't worry about it. You know, we've, we've had this discussion before. It's like, I have this one area that I do it. That's what I use it. And I used to have sure. a couple different platforms, but I never really, for whatever reason, none of them ever gave me the same warm and fuzzy that I no. get with Coinbase. And so I just no, and, didn't uh, use them. I have accounts and those accounts are secured, um, but sure. I don't, I don't use them. Um, and yep. so I, and and I I use them a little bit differently because I did buy into some some random alts you know back in the day and, and I've yeah. done it before but I will onboard in sketchy exchanges I'll call them that that's not really fair some of them have been around for a long time and have proven to be quite secure they just don't have the brand image that Coinbase has sure. but you know places like KuCoin places like Bitrex you know they've been around for a long time and they've got their downsides too but what I will do is I will purchase a coin and then I get it out I don't I do not leave coins anywhere except for Coinbase or in my hardware wallet, or if I have to, a software wallet elsewhere, because there are some coins that you can't put on something like a Ledger or a right. Trezor wallet in general. And uh, even though I know it's the most secure, I don't really like paper wallets very much. It's straightforward, but I just, meh, I still like being able to click, click and be done. Yeah, I hear you. Well, I think I got one more, uh, maybe before we shut it down. I don't know if you have any any other ones. Uh, not really. No, those are the ones that I, I really wanted to talk about. There's some other interesting stuff in the news for sure, but there are, I, I think like there's some deeper topics in here. Um, yeah, but this, this one's kind of fun. And I want to say Kieran shared it. Uh, for me, it was this morning. I have no idea what that means time-wise for him, but, uh, did you see the drones in Shanghai? I did a QR code, which that's worked. hilarious. I, so I heard about it, but I do. Where did it go? What What was the QR code? What did it do? So is it an app or a, a site? It is. So it's basically a massive 
advertising campaign. Yeah, that's I will awesome. tell you some people responded poorly to. Um, so there is a Chinese video streaming company called uh, Billabilly. Uh, and on the first anniversary of the China release of the Japanese role-playing game, Princess Connect Redive. It's a very involved name. Sure, um, yeah, wow. That's they, they basically use this to promote it. So like they were actually making cool. other images of what I'll just assume are characters in this game. Uh, something mm-hmm. that says win in English, ironically, in Shanghai. <laughs> and and it just it's these images are incredible that they've made with these drones. Yeah, and the then they drone would they would kind of go from creating the image with these, you know, ah, awesome. thousands of drones to forming a QR code, which you could then scan. Oh, and, oh my gosh. No, no, no. Yeah. Okay. So when when you were describing, I wasn't looking at the image here because I, I saw a picture of the QR code and it's super impressive. Uh, not only because it's just a bunch of coordinated drones, which they do through AI, by the way. This is not obviously yep. a bunch of pilots lining this crap up in three-dimensional space sitting up in the sky. But uh, <laughs> when he was describing the win and the characters, it's all at once. Yeah. It's, it's hundreds and hundreds of dots that have different colors making these characters with like, it looks like a billboard floating in the sky. It it's really cool. does. And so that was my reaction as well, but apparently that's not the reaction for everyone. <laughs> <laughs> there, there were a lot of people what? who well, hate it. sort of greatly upset. And then in this in this article from Why? Vice, there is one specific one that's called out. And I clicked on uh, the the Twitter link, and there's there's a bunch of people that sort of agree and and provided other ones. But this person said. I'm kind of at a loss for words because this is a great example of us being in the, I'll just say crappy kind of cyberpunk future that uses the miracle of mass automation to literally put ads in the effing sky. I I feel that, but it's also get off my lawn. You know, somebody shouting it quite literally shouting it at clouds at this point, even though it looked pretty cloudless. Um, yeah, I, putting this in the realm, they're they're calling it. It's like Blade Runner twenty forty nine. They pointed out an article saying where everything was ad filled. And the thing that yeah. sort of stuck out to me, and I think it, I think it bothers me a little bit, just because. And we've yeah. had this about the the ads the ads conversation where it says mm-hmm. the massive holographic advertisements compete for people's attention and constantly nudge them to buy and consume more. Yeah, and I just kind of want to remind people that the choice is ultimately in your hands. <laughs> it's it's still, still what you, you do. Like you, you, there's an ownership aspect of this yeah it is not the company's fault for advertising their product so right it's your fault out. for buying it and and that's you know man i'm I'm with you on that one 100 because at the end of the day i'm not super excited about drone ads in the sky though i will get excited about the technical capability that allows it enough that i don't think it bothers me right now um but at the end of the day you know what a company's not going to do Stop if people don't scan the code and use and and buy their product, they're not going to spend a hundred million dollars on a on a drone show. Yeah. So this was an if it doesn't work, expensive advertisement. They won't do it. But if it works, they're going to keep doing it. So stop buying crap using that QR code, and and you probably will have a better future from an advertising perspective. It's, it's but it's on like you, you people. It's almost like you have a almost. vote. If you can, you can spend here. Words chosen very carefully there. Yeah, right, add. right. So, yeah, I, I, oh, it's fun. Man. It's cool. I don't want to see millions of drones in the sky no, doing this all day. I don't not want digital constantly. ads in front of me all the time. But let's not 
let's not make this an issue of, well, I just don't want to buy more. So I wish they wouldn't do this. Which oh, is yes. Get out of here. Actual complaint. And I, you know what? I'm just not ever going to support that, that mentality or line of thinking. So, but with that, I think it'll do it. I think so too. And that brings another Tech Breakfast podcast to a close. The week is over. Happy Friday. Thanks for listening. Thanks for joining. Thanks for sharing. Thanks for supporting us. And we will talk to you next week. Have a great weekend, y'all. Later.